Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I'd like to welcome everyone to the podcast that is being offered by Prestige. And this is a partnership with the Department of Behavioral Health in Washington, D.C. And I am so, so excited to introduce our guest today, Ms. Jennifer Jackson. Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we have a lot of information to share and we like to invite experts to our podcast. And indeed, you've demonstrated uh expertise, particularly in the area of HIV counseling, testing. And let me just tell the audience a little bit about you, and then we'll go right into self-introduction. But Ms. Jackson is an experienced capacity builder, building manager with a demonstrated history of working in public health for over 20 years, skilled in partner services and outbreak response, HIV counseling and testing, HIV, STI, HCV prevention, syringe service programs, public health marketing campaigns. I'll tell you, stakeholder and community engagement. It goes on and on. Community-based organizations, state and local health departments. Jennifer, you really are committed to providing services and advocacy at the grassroots community level. So we're excited to have this discussion. So Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background, both personally and professionally. Where did you grow up? Where did you attend? university? What did your training entail? Tell us about yourself. Well, I grew up in Baltimore. Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, Baltimore, Maryland. And I went to, uh, I got my bachelor's at Towson University in school and community health education. And my first job out of college was for a medical center here in Baltimore, Park West Medical Center. Mm. I was an outreach worker for a Ryan White program. And so that's sort of where I got my start. And then over the years, just did a little bit of everything. Uh, worked for you know Planned Parenthood, where I did education and outreach and worked for a university and did research. And I've worked for local and state health departments. So I've done just sort of, a, I lived in Baltimore for a while. Then I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh. I worked out there for a bit. And then I moved to Austin, Texas. I worked out there for about 10 years. And now I'm back in Baltimore and I've been here since 2016. So yeah. I brought it all, I brought it all back home. That's right. That's right. Back home. <laughs> Tell us a little more about your field of study and what your concentration and focus was in your training. 
Sure. So like I mentioned, my, my bachelor's is in school and community health education. I got a master's 10 years after I got my bachelor's. I'm a late bloomer. And I got that in EMS leadership at George Washington University, which is a disaster and outbreak response because I have professional experience in outbreak response, working in partner services, disease investigation. And so I was particularly interested in that program. And now I am in their PhD program for translational health science at George Washington University. And I'm currently writing my proposal for my dissertation. And what I really want to look at is how uh, COVID-19 and the racial injustice protests have affected syringe exchange programs, providing services, and also clients accessing their services. So that can inform emergency planning for these programs so that they can function even in times of when there's intense social chaos or increased police activity, you know, pandemics, you know, that they can still meet the needs of their clients. Yeah. Would you consider this pandemic experience we're under right now as an outbreak response opportunity? And, and, how, and how do you relate to what's going on currently? Well, you know, when you're a disease intervention specialist, and that's a DIS, that's the disease investigators, they always say once a DIS, always a DIS. And <laughs> that is the case. So you see all of this happening and you see this spreading. And it it is reminiscent of other outbreaks that I've seen that have been contained because they were not as infectious as, yes. you know, it's, it's much easier, believe it or not, to contain, you know, an HIV outbreak or a syphilis outbreak where you can have like a sort of a, a social sexual network and then you okay. get everybody tested and treated. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's just being out in public and that's a challenge, but a lot of DIS are doing COVID work right now yes. and are doing this the contact tracing and the investigations. So when I look at it, I mean, when I, when this all started to happen, I immediately took the COVID trainings online because as a DIS, you know, I figure at some point somebody is going to call me and say, we need you to help with contact tracing. So, you know, I'm prepared to go if they need me. Jennifer, why did you decide to study outbreak response and how are you using that knowledge during this pandemic? You know, I particularly liked outbreak response because it was something I was already, I was already doing professionally. And I was interested at the time of taking on more of a leadership role, Mm -hmm. um, being able to respond. And so, you know, I, I just, my school just happened to have the perfect program for that. I was the only public health person in it. Everybody else was coming from the EMS side. Yes. they all sort of understood like, or disaster response. So they understood that side of it. And I understood the public health side of it. Um, But I've always been really interested in public health and especially in the field of infectious disease. So it just made sense. You know, I saw that as an opportunity and I grabbed it. Absolutely. Jennifer, can you tell me how HIV and the AIDS community is being directly impacted by the pandemic? Oh yeah, absolutely. So one, it's affecting access to providers, yeah. right? Okay. So seeing a lot of increase in telemedicine and other ways that providers can engage with their clients. You know, it affects people's access to 
treatment to, to access their medications. It affects, I mean, it's sort of like every step of the way, counseling and testing. I mean, you, you and now you're starting to see testing sort of ramp up again. But for a while, there was no HIV testing going on out in the community because it wasn't safe to get together and do That's those right. things, right? That's right. So, so That's people right. had to modify their services. Yes. I work very closely with an outpatient at UD clinic, substance use disorder clinic. Mm-hmm. And part of the enrollment process is a medical screening. And, you know, telehealth is the primary format of service delivery now. But people have to come in for the medical screening, blood work, TB testing, yada, yada, yada. And it's interesting how this clinic has had to stagger the schedules and be, be more mindful about distancing and, and just taking additional precautions. But it does limit the number of consumers who can enroll in a, in a specific period of time. The need has increased, but the access opportunities have decreased because of the method of enrollment and admission. So that's kind of what you're speaking to, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I, that's definitely been been a challenge too, right? Limiting the amount of people that can be seen and, and people not having access. Another issue that um, that I've been seeing is, you know, people are losing their jobs. Yes. And so people are losing their insurance. Right. And with that, the ability to pay for their HIV medications. And so, you know, some people are relying on the ADAP, you know, the AIDS Drugs yeah. Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. But some people, you know, uh, for example, uh, a friend of mine doesn't qualify for it because his husband makes too much to be able to uh, have him get that support. Yeah, right. However, uh, he doesn't have insurance coverage and they can't really afford the medication. So right. then there's this sort of funky area that they're in where they're trying to sort of problem solve how yeah. you're going to get your medication. Yeah. And and unfortunately, some people choose to um, not access medical services at this time because of the cost. And that's going to increase their instability and and, and so on and so forth. So how do we ensure continuity of care for people who are HIV compromised? And and how do we improve the likelihood that someone's going to reach out for services and get the services? that they need. That's been the real challenge for people. And I know, I think telehealth is definitely like one of the ways to go. I know that I've talked to some providers who are a little more hands-on. They're seeing less clients, less patients. So one of the things that they're doing now is reaching out to their patients, mm-hmm. calling them on the phone and, and trying to engage them and making sure that they're okay. So, you know, I, there's definitely a lot more outreach that providers haven't had to do before, but there's a little more time to do it because you're not slammed back to back with patients, you know, every 15 minutes. So um, yes, that's one of the things that I've seen that people are doing. You know, one of the preferred um, intervention styles for behavioral health is group process, whether support groups, group therapy, group education, and we've not uh, realized or we're not maximizing that format right now again because of the pandemic. You know, Zoom, you do have Zoom groups uh, available, but I find that many of the consumers that we relate to at the community level don't even have access to Zoom uh, and aren't familiar with the technology and may not even have a phone or a computer, which again limits their access 
but I, I truly miss the, uh, the opportunities that present themselves in a group process, whether you're working in a supportive nature or just a, a pure therapeutic function. Uh, how does COVID-19 affect the way we provide care for people who use drugs? Is, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> I, you know, it, it affects so many things. One, okay, services for people who use drugs, and it depends on what you're looking at. So if you're looking at, uh, for example, syringe services, they're yes. operating on a shoestring budget as it is a lot of these, a lot of these organizations, you know, right. so, you know, they have people that are out there, they're trying to sort of change their services to be able to meet the needs of people who might be quarantining, right? Because they, they don't want to, for example, a, a lot of places now who had centers that people could come to and access, you know, syringe exchange and other services. Now they can't let people in the door. So they're setting up tables out in front so right. that people can come up and get what they need that way. Or they're using mobile vans or they're doing home pickups of syringes and and being able to drop off whatever supplies they need and engage with people sort of in a a safer way to make sure they're okay. I know that in uh, some areas, like for example, in San Francisco, their syringe exchange started giving out tents to people who are homeless because how do you quarantine when you don't have a place to live? And so they've had to change the types of services they were providing or the types of Uh, resources that they were distributing to their clients. So you see that on one hand. And then with things like MAT, like assisted treatment and medications for opioid use disorder, you know, with that, you're seeing a a change to telehealth. You know, some of the regulations have been relaxed a little bit so that you can start people quickly and you don't have to go through all the processes that you originally had to go through just because of the pandemic. So, you know, programs are trying to sort of uh, morph and change so that they can meet the need of their clients. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there that right now are experiencing homelessness. You know, they're living in poverty. They don't have enough food. And so there's a lot of these other issues that are going on for them that were going on already. And then Mm -hmm. you add that layer of COVID to it. You add trauma that people are carrying around with them. You add substance use disorder to it. You add HIV and other comorbidities. I mean, people are really dealing with a lot right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Jennifer, as you were talking, I just considered this paramount requirement of confidentiality when we talk about treatment services. And now that we're moving outside of the clinic walls and in the community and were visible to everyone, what is the impact of potential breach in confidentiality? I mean, I have my tents set up, the services are clearly uh, demonstrated on the tent, everyone kind of knows why you're coming to the tent, and I wonder how, what impact that's having on the, um, the client or consumer who's walking and obviously identifying themselves as in need of this service. You know, I I think that even not in the pandemic, you know, that is a very real concern for clients, right? Like we, I used to run a mobile testing and syringe exchange van in the San Francisco Bay area. And if you're accessing, people knew what we did, people knew the services that we provided. And, you know, as long as there's stigma 
around things like HIV and substance use, you know, you're going to have people judging you for accessing those services. And I think one of the things that we did, one, we had set places where we would set up so people who were comfortable to access those services could access them. But another thing that we provided as part of that program was um, testing on demand and on demand. So somebody could call us and say, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'd really love to be able to do this, but I don't want to come to the site or be seen. And we would arrange a meeting point to be able to meet them. It might be behind a mall or behind the McDonald's or someplace where it's just a little more private. Of, of course, we've always kept their information has always been kept confidential. And even if you're working, you know, people see you going on a van, there's usually lots of different services being offered there. They don't exactly know why you're there. And records are very secure now. I mean, I, so I think that part isn't the issue, like that HIPAA part. It's more yes. the stigma part of people yes, seeking right. to access the services. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, Jennifer, for clarifying that. Jennifer, what's the biggest challenge we're facing currently or related to the pandemic and just public health generally? Give me the top three. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many. I would say there's there was already a housing problem, and uh, housing is good public health, and it keeps That's people right. safe. And I think that that is a huge issue. I also definitely need to mention the isolation that people are experiencing during this time. You know, people in who use drugs who are, you know, we're seeing increases in overdose, right? Because people are using more isolated and quarantined and they don't have people around them. So if Mm -hmm. they were to overdose, there's nobody there to be able to administer naloxone, provide rescue breathing. You know, I think that overdose is a huge issue right now, but definitely going back to that, that isolation and that what they call quarantine depression. I mean, it's real and, and having people who, you know, connectivity is so important for the community. Right. And, and like you were talking about, like having groups and especially if you're in recovery, you know, like being able to go to a group and being around people in the same room is way different than being on a Zoom meeting where only half the people have their cameras on right. and people aren't really engaging with each other and you're not physically in the same space together. Yes. You know, so there's definitely, I think, I think those issues are, are pretty significant. You know, Jennifer, you mentioned that stability factor of housing, just having stable housing as the foundation for good recovery opportunities. And you're absolutely right. There's so many of our consumers that are just struggling with adequate housing. And during this pandemic, the service and the opportunity for applications has slowed down. The vacancies uh, and entitlements are, are, are have narrowed. And many of our clients that we're seeing here at Prestige are chronically homeless. And right now, there's an enhanced sense of homelessness because we can't even get an application through now because of staffing capacities at the various community-based agencies and, and the like. Without adequate housing and stable housing, it's really hard to focus on one's health, whether it's your mental health, your physical health, right? So that, that's something we really need to um, think about and, and just understand, yeah. Um, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that racism plays a really big role in this. And it's sort of like the this overlapping layer on 
absolutely all of these issues and everything. Yeah. It's on the funding, on the access, on people's engagement with law enforcement, you right. know, and which is terrifying in a pandemic right now to right. have increased engagement with law enforcement with the fact that you could be incarcerated or held somewhere, you know, pending bail that you can't make and then be exposed to COVID, you know, because a lot of the jails and prisons right now are having outbreaks of COVID. Absolutely. Going on. I, I have a friend who's doing outbreak response in California right now at a prison that is right. having an outbreak of COVID. And right. so, and it's not just the people who are incarcerated there, the staff, like everybody is having that issue. So I feel that, that racism is just, this is the constant. Yes. Yeah. In I agree all with of you. As well. I agree with you. Yeah. For 20 years, I've done a, a mandated treatment, worked a, a lot with high-risk offenders, and uh, have done some correctional treatment services. And I must tell you, I think I would be terrified at this point going into a federal institution or the D.C. jail to provide mental health services. Uh, and I'm sure that would impact my delivery style and just my, how I relate with, with the gentlemen and ladies who are unfortunately incarcerated. And I have heard of the fears of family members of those who are returning citizens talking about, you know, just the uncertainty and the vulnerability they feel with being confined and not having options of, of safe distancing and, and even adequate care and oversight. Oh, uh, so this is this is this is a real issue. Yeah, so many things need to be done for returning citizens. And that is another area that I mm. feel really strongly about. You know, people are just released. And, you know, it, when you look at rates of things like hep C in the prison okay. system, which is significantly higher than out in the general public, and then you have somebody whose immune system might not be that great, and then they've been exposed to COVID, and then they come out and there's, where are they going to go? And there's, there's no, you know, there's no housing, there's no services. You know, I used to work, when I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I worked for a transitional case management program, and it was... HIV positive men and women coming from jail or prison yes. and we housed them temporarily, then linked them to all the services that they needed so that they would have, you know, their medical care, like everything taken care of, and then mm -hmm. help link them to a more permanent housing. Yes. And so, but there's not a lot of programs like that. It, that absolutely. Absolutely and not. It was, yeah. I mean, it was funded as part of a study that was called Home Base and Springboard. And, you know, it was absolutely an incredible, incredible program. And the clients were amazing. And when you give people the opportunity to get stable after incarceration, to get their health stable, mm -hmm. to get their substance use, whether they're reducing their harm with absolutely. it. Remember, they're more likely to overdose if they start using mm -hmm. again after being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So to have having that sense of community, like we would have, I remember it was Christmas and Christmas Day, we had all of these people who were staying there that didn't have any family to be able to spend the holiday with. That's right. And so we were their family and we all had Christmas together and did it. So that sense of community and that sense of belonging and that it's so important and, and it's really missing. And it's one of the things that I've been I've been pushing and I, I've reached out to different organizations, even in, in uh, back in California, just saying, mm -hmm. hey, just so you know, 
I feel really strongly about this and you should too. And this is why, because I really feel that uh, we're really, really dropping the ball for our returning citizens. I I agree a hundred percent. And specific to DC returning citizens, we know DC inmates do their time in the federal system. They go all over the country. I think there's 76 federal institutions that a DC inmate could be housed. And for those who've experienced long-term sentences, that community or, or the connectedness that you would need, they've lost. They've done their time in Montana, Nebraska, Idaho, and they're coming home disconnected with their family, disconnected from services. They don't even know the lay of the land anymore. And so trying to get reintegrated into an unfamiliar experience is really a challenge. Uh, and I'm trying to get employed. Oh, my goodness. Post-incarceration. Yes. I mean, how are you supposed to support yourself if people aren't going to hire you and give you that opportunity? You know, and there's some really great organizations that are doing that. And, you know, there was one that I, I just attended a gala benefit that they were they were doing that's in New York City. And mm-hmm. uh, they did a virtual event on it. But it's, a, you know, an or, uh, basically a restaurant that uses all their profits to support different organizations and employs people who were coming from like jail or prison who need a second chance. That's right. And, and that's right. their staff there and that's their model. And it, it's an amazing place. And their staff is amazing and they're incredible people. And now they have an income and then they have that opportunity to be able to rebuild their lives. Yeah, which is so important. It's so important. I'm so sensitive to vulnerable populations, particularly now with the pandemic being the backdrop. That experience is just complicated times 10 now. And trying to navigate services in the city and resources, it's just so challenging. So we, those of us who are working at the grassroots level in the community, are sometimes their only connection to to any sense of stability. And we have to remain hopeful for them because it's, it's, you know, again, they're in a vulnerable posture. And sometimes that hope is easily exhausted, even if they have them. Listen, many of our clients have to reside in shelters. Mm -hmm. Some choose not to even go into the shelter at this time because of the increased risk. And what do you say about that? How do we What do we do with a consumer who has no housing, whose only option is a community-based shelter, and they'd rather live on the street? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've seen that plenty of times. I've seen that where people just, people feel safer on the street a lot of times than they do accessing any type of services. Like, yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, focus groups that I just did, Mm -hmm. and the community members in the focus groups that were saying that they get more respect on the street than they trying to access the healthcare system. The people that are supposed to be providing them the help treat them, you know, they said that they're, they experience a lot of stigma, they're experiencing a lot of racism, that people, that uh, staff is unsupportive. So a lot of times there's this reluctance yes. to engage in those services. And it's the same thing with engaging with services around like the housing and the shelters too. Absolutely. Jennifer, could you tell us more about the focus groups? I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, What's the intended purpose? Who are the participants? What's the goal of the focus groups? Yeah, so I did these focus groups for uh, the Opioid Learning Institute, which is funded by the DC Department of Health. Um, We are, Health HIV is the capacity building assistance, training and technical assistance provider 
this as well as a couple other programs for the DC Department of Health, EpiBerry program, and then also DC Engage. But what this program specifically does, it's a comprehensive educational initiative to educate prescribers and other health professionals on safe opioid prescribing practices. Okay. And we develop a self-paced accredited curriculum that uh, covers topics related to like opioid prescribing, treatment options, harm reduction, opioid use and misuse, and better ways to communicate with patients. And so one of the things that we, I strongly believe in is stakeholder engagement. And, you know, I want to hear from clients and I wanted to hear from community health workers. We wanted to hear from our providers, the providers that are providing buprenorphine, you know, and medications for opioid use disorder, and also the providers that are not uh, data wave to be able to provide that, but are, are still seeing clients with opioid use disorder. And we wanted to talk to them because um, their feedback would inform what we're going to design as educational modules for, yes, for our absolutely. program. So some of the themes that you're hearing from the participants. Oh what <laughs> so what I'm find what we found is mm-hmm. that community health workers, they were saying that um, well one, they have such an amazing connect. Community health workers to me are rock stars of public absolutely. So I'm just absolutely. gonna put that out there right there, (laughs) rock stars, they're amazing. And they have these connections with clients, you know, they're not like medical providers, so they can really engage with them. And they said that they, what they have seen is that the health system serving Mm -hmm. people with opioid use disorder in DC was characterized by a punitive nature and that Mm -hmm. it focuses on data collection over client-centered care. And that there was a lack of a whole person health lens and that it was difficult to navigate. And they said that one of the things that needs to be addressed, and this is something we could address through training, is judgment by front desk staff and addressing policies that punish clients rather than acknowledge their efforts to seek treatment. So sometimes there's policies like if you're 15 minutes late, we won't see you. And you have somebody that's very willing to start, you know, medications for opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. And what they're late getting there and all of a sudden they're turned away from service. And it's kind of like, I, I call them like they're little fragile baby ducks and you that's just right. want to grab them while you can. And that's link them right. To- is why you can. So that has been an issue. And also community health workers. um, And as somebody who's implementation scientist, this really resonated with me, says that a lot of funding opportunities that are put out, whether they are local or federal, are not community informed. It's more so it's people who are really removed from the practical application of how things work. And so what they would like to see is more community health worker, more stakeholder involvement in these funding opportunities that they can inform the funding opportunities before the RFP is released. So what do you intend to do with the um, information you're collecting and what kind of advocacy and follow-up do you intend to do? And who are you going to share this information with? Well, I'm going to share this information with everybody who will listen. And <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of noise because I made a commitment to um, the people who were in my focus group that I would make a lot of noise for them. Look, I have to acknowledge that, you know, that between my education, 
I'm a white lady. I have a certain level of privilege and I have a responsibility to be able to take that and be able to run with it and and see who I can advocate for. So that is what I am doing. And so I am speaking to anybody who will hear me. I'm talking to the DC Department of Health about the, because I also looked at what were some of the systemic issues that were being seen. And these are things that they may help to address. So bringing those to their attention. And then also we identified 19 potential training topics or trainings Mm -hmm. that related to opioid use just based on the feedback of everybody during uh, these focus groups. So this is going to inform modules that we're doing. For example, one thing it's informing is somebody had mentioned in the focus group that they have clients that are trying to access treatment, but they're older clients with opioid use disorder who have mobility issues and the beds are bunk beds and they can't physically go to treatment if they can't actually like get into the inpatient. And so one of the things is I talked to somebody from the Department of Justice who does a lot of the ADA investigations because opioid use disorder is protected under the American with Disabilities Act, along with HIV and other disabilities. And when I mentioned to him that mm-hmm. people are having with opioid use disorder were having issues accessing treatment centers based on the fact that they could not physically get into the beds, he was very interested in that. So now, you know, we are going to have a webinar. He's going to speak. We're going to have a webinar from the Department of Justice, ADA, so that the message can get out. And then people will know how to file with them for, yes. for them to investigate that, to be able to have that rectified. So again, I'm making a lot of noise mm-hmm. so that I can bring attention to some of these issues that people are, are seeing because accessibility should not be an issue for somebody wanting to get into any not. type of treatment or recovery. Yeah. And so that's us, the system failing people. So I'm, I'm in agreement with make, that. We need to be better. Jennifer, your commitment is undeniable. Your passion and just I got your, that fire in the belly. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm all that. <laughs> yeah, you're you got two feet in. You know, when you talk about this window of opportunity, which is sometimes fleeting and brief for someone who's struggling with addiction, health issues, behavioral health issues, that is so important. And and these formal rules and policies that some agencies have to be reconsidered because when a client is ready for treatment, it's generally not within our prescribed timeframes of service, right? It's not nine to five that I wake up and say, hey, I'm ready to get some help. And we need to be there to serve. One of my most remarkable experiences as a, a manager of treatment programs was in the, this must have been in the 90s where a returning citizen was coming home after 30 year uh, stay with Bureau of Prisons. And he had to report to treatment within 24 hours of landing back in DC. So he, comes to the halfway house, and he had to attend the next uh, scheduled orientation center. Well, he came to the orientation center, I think he was 20 minutes late. And there was a policy in this program that if you're beyond 15 minutes late, you would not be allowed into the orientation group and therefore could enter treatment. It would be in violation immediately of your rela- your release condition. So I'm doing the orientation and the the client's at the front door. He's making a lot of noise. He's cussing and hussing. And I allow him to come into the meeting. And I asked him, hey, man, you know, Bureau of Prisons has some some stringent rules around this and you're late. You might have to notify them. 
And what he told me really had an impact. And he said, Mr. Wells, I'm sorry for being late. And he said, listen, Mr. Wells, I've been locked up 30 years. And when I first got locked up as a young man, the metro system wasn't even in operation. There was not a metro. And so I'm coming home now. And I honestly, Mr. Wells, I didn't know how to get here. I did not know how to get into this location. That was reasonable to me. That made sense to me. Absolutely. It made a lot of sense to me. And so, of course, we did allow him to to remain in the orientation group and we enrolled him and he completed successful. Right. Jennifer, this has been I've really enjoyed the time with you and we look forward to hearing the outcomes of your focus group and the recommendations. Perhaps we can have you come back and share at a later date some of the the findings and conclusions that you're uh, representing and moving forward. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing before we end the segment? Yes, actually, I'd like to mention, and I'm going to bring it up right here so I get it right, but I have some quotes from some of the uh, attendees of the focus group. And um, yeah, and one of the quotes is what I want to leave you with. But there were just some beautiful things that people said and definitely a lot of aha moments. And well, one of the things that I do like that one of the community health workers said mm-hmm. was that about their clients, I don't care if they're hollering at the moon, I will holler at the moon with them. And that's how I feel as well. I'm going to holler at the moon with them until somebody listens and yes. somebody pays attention. And one of the professionals I wanted to leave you with said that I think as professionals, we need to have trainings on identifying our own biases, because I think sometimes that we think we are the most culturally sensitive and we're not. So I think that, you know, for providers, definitely looking at their biases and the judgments that they have with regard to their clients with accessing treatment. One of the providers said, I think the key for treatment is make it easier to get than heroin. So I think, <laughs> I think that's a really solid wow. point. And I wanted that to really bring that is. up as well. And then uh, the community health worker, uh, this is the community member. So these mm-hmm. are our, our consumers. I want to leave you with this. They said, how do you create leadership when you silence the voices? Wow. So again, building the community and helping that community heal. And that includes people who are being released from jail and prison. It includes like the most vulnerable people out there, you know, who do not have housing or, you know, who are, you know, are are dealing with a lot of trauma. So, you know, how can we lift people up and how can we create that leadership if we're silencing their voices? Jennifer Jackson, I've really enjoyed this time with you. We salute you for your your stellar work, your commitment. We appreciate your service to the community and those who are underrepresented, vulnerable, and in need of some advocacy. We thank you for your time today, and we look forward to hearing more from you and your, your work. And tell the participants of your focus group that we heard them today. We heard them clearly, and we appreciate their participation and for them giving us information about the real need. What's the real need out there? And they're describing it well and they're facilitating that communication through you. So thank you, Ms. Jackson. I want you to be safe, well, 
and we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.